Hey, Property Insiders, I'm Mike Stenhouse. This is the Inside Property Investing Podcast, and you're in the right place if you are an active or aspiring property investor looking to grow your portfolio and build a business that works for you. I'm here to help you through advice and inspiration from our own growth over the past decade and from hundreds of interviews with other investors who are all creating their own version of success and freedom from property. In today's episode, I'm sharing our second update from IPI Washway, one of our own projects to convert an office building into a seven-bedroom HMO in an Article 4 area. I'm joined again by Will, who's our new project manager. He started working for us officially about three months ago with no previous property experience. So whilst we've thrown him in at the deep end, what we're hoping to show with this series is that anyone, including you, can get involved in great projects like this one without a ton of past experience. And sure, you might need some support and guidance along the way like Will's getting from me, but that's exactly what our Inside HMO Investing program offers investors. Last month, in the first episode of the IPI Washway series, Will and I discussed the purchase process for this building, finding it listed in an upcoming auction and then how we went on to secure it before anyone else actually got a chance to bid at auction. We also looked at the deal analysis that we went through to understand if the numbers made sense and we started to discuss the planning process as well, particularly around what you need to consider if you're looking to invest in an Article 4 area where the usual permitted development rights are removed. This month, we're looking at the next stages of the project and specifically what Will's been focusing on, including the strip out of the building, what that uncovered, and why we like to get that part of the process done as soon as possible after the purchase completes. We talk about the delays that we've experienced so far with the planning application, in part due to changes that we made to our original plans that will increase the profitability of the house, and in part due to objections from neighbours. And finally, the start of the tender process, including what we're overlapping with the planning application to condense the overall program, and what Will's doing to ensure the quotes that we get from builders and contractors are as accurate as possible. Now, if all of this talk about permitted development, Article 4 directives, and deal analysis is leaving you scratching your head, then don't worry, we have got a comprehensive free introduction to HMO investing that brings you up to speed on all of the important HMO terminology, as well as the different types of HMO projects you might consider, and some project case studies to show you exactly what is possible with this strategy. You can download it for free at insidepropertyinvesting.com forward slash HMO. Now I'll remind you of that link again at the end of the show, But before we jump into today's episode, let's just take a minute to thank our sponsors. So I recently came across a company called Hammock and I immediately knew that they had a service I had to share with you. At its core, Hammock is a challenger bank that provides current account services designed specifically for landlords and property managers, but that really doesn't do it justice. Hammock combine property management with financial services to automate things like rent collection, simplify your bookkeeping, and ultimately save you time and money. They bridge the gap between your traditional bank account and your financial management system, whether that's a simple spreadsheet or more complex bookkeeping software, and the results are awesome. 
First of all, it tracks your income and your expenses either through your new Hammock current account or whichever bank you currently use. It'll then automatically monitor your rent status, alerting you to any missed payments across your portfolio so that you can quickly follow up with your tenants. And it also provides live analytics at a property and a portfolio level to show you insights like your profit and loss, your arrears, your occupancy rates, yields and much more. It's a single app that can replace multiple different tools that you currently use in your business, many of which you're probably paying monthly fees for. This will reduce your monthly outgoings, but the value it provides goes way beyond that with the real-time overview of your portfolio finances. I love what I've seen so far from Hammock and if you're on the hunt for a new current account for your property business or if you'd prefer to make the most of open banking and connect your existing bank accounts to Hammock then the best bet is to check it out yourself with a 30-day free trial at usehammock.com forward slash inside property investing or via the show notes for this episode. Well, Will, I am delighted to have you back on the show. Happy Friday. It's currently Friday afternoon when we're recording this. I hope uh, I hope it's as sunny back in lovely Cheshire as it is in the south of Italy. Oh, uh, well, for once, it is actually a bit sunny here. We've had a rain all the last week, as you've seen on a few of the Zoom calls. So, yeah, it does make a bit of a difference with a bit of sunshine. Good. Glad to hear it. And I appreciate you taking the time. It's literally the last thing between you and the weekend or between I'm, I'm the last thing between you and the, yeah I guess that's the right turn of phrase so uh I appreciate you you squeezing this in you've been you've been busy you've been uh I feel like you're kind of really stepping into the project management role and uh just getting stuff done which is what I like to see are you are you enjoying it are you finding that you like do you feel like your your knowledge and your expertise is is growing as quickly as it seems to be yeah, absolutely. I think it's because we've got a few projects on the go and they're all at different stages. So I'm learning at every single different stage and it's speaking to different consultants and everybody involved. So everything's a new lesson and yeah, it's been really good so far. I've been really enjoying it. Good. Well, what we're here to talk about today is uh, IPI Washway, our latest soon-to-be HMO development in an Article 4 area just outside Manchester. Um, as a lot of you will know, we have another HMO in the same Article 4 area. We are pretty confident that um, this will be approved as well because we understand why the Article 4 directive was introduced. And despite what a lot of people think, Article 4 does not mean no HMO. It just means that you kind of need to dig into it a little bit more and understand the, the challenges and the council's concerns. And in a lot of cases, if you can address them, um, HMOs are still feasible whilst a lot of other investors disappear to somewhere else because they're they're scared of them now we talked all about that in the first episode that will and i did uh episode 348 so it was back around about the end of june so a little over a month ago um we looked at a couple of things there we looked at the way that we bought this property which uh was listed to go to auction uh, we managed to buy it pre-auction by getting in touch with the vendor directly. And we went into the details of how we analyzed the deal and how we were able to, um, to secure that before it went to auction. We looked at the deal analysis process and we looked, I think, well, at the planning application, some of the details of that as well, if my memory serves me right. 
Yeah, we were just up to that stage, really. So we've done a little bit of the planning, but we're, we were more saving it for this episode. So, okay. Yeah. It's interesting. I can't remember if we did discuss this, but one of the things that really, um, it still continues to surprise me, the difference between different local authorities and their planning requirements on projects. Uh, you've been working on another application as well in Stockport. And the, that was the first one, I think, that you were, were helping with. And the list of requirements, the surveys and the expert reports that we needed on that one was as long as your arm. And this one was really simple by comparison. There was, I don't think, a single expert survey needed with our initial application anyway. No, no. Yeah, absolutely. So it was just literally the planning application that we need. And then it was when the planning authority came back to us, that was when we only needed the, the ecology report. And that was it for this project. Yeah, well, well, we'll talk about that in a, in a second, I guess, because that ecology survey kind of came up as a result of what we uncovered during the strip out. Today, we're going to look at, I mean, as with the last uh, episode and as with future episodes, the plan is to share what Will's been focused on, I guess, some of the lessons that you've learned, maybe some of the struggles that you've come up against as somebody who's coming on to do a, an HMO project with relatively little experience other than the other projects you're working on in tandem with us just to kind of see how you find it is it possible to to do a project like this with with limited experience and uh you know how you find that that whole process um so i guess the i think we were kind of uh working through the strip out um when we were recording the last one it might even have been finished a lot of the the strip out work that we were doing but we said we would save that for this episode just because I guess chronologically that's kind of the next thing that would would typically happen so do you want to do you want to tell us first of all just a little bit about um the the extent of the work that we did for this strip out and then we'll go on to talk about you know some of the things that we uncovered absolutely yeah so when we first purchased the building it was an old commercial building and it hadn't been in memory it hadn't been used in quite a few years so we thought the idea would be to just take it back to plaster and with that we would go around all the rooms and literally uncover what, what it needed to be for the bedrooms and then we knew where the, all the stud walls would be uh, would be going but um yeah unfortunately it didn't go to plan like that and as we've seen discovered as we'll get on to now it was completely different to what we'd anticipated and what we'd scheduled for. Yeah, I, I, I mean, normally our approach is back to brick. We, we buy old buildings that are falling down and uh, we don't really have much choice except to go back to brick. And there's, there's various different approaches. Um, just because that's what we do doesn't mean that all HMO renovations or conversions need to be back to brick. It is perfectly feasible to buy something in much better condition that just needs sort of minor cosmetic work before it's letable as a shared house. But um, our preference, our style is to, to really sort of transform buildings, uh, cost a lot of money. Hopefully we get that back on the end valuation. Hopefully it's reflected in the rents that we achieve as well. But this one, we, we went in and um, we kind of thought we'd struck gold a little bit. We thought this looks in better condition than some of the ones that we've bought recently. Uh, maybe we don't need to take it back to brick. Maybe we can retain pretty much all of the existing uh, plaster. Obviously, new stud walls would need to be insulated, boarded, and skimmed. But all the uh, retained walls, we thought <laughs> we thought we were going to have an easy time and make some savings on the budget just by pretty much leaving that as it was. Um, unfortunately, it didn't quite work out like that. 
No, so I think we we've met the the builder there who's going to do the strip out for us. I think it was midweek, and we had it all planned out, and he was going to start on the Saturday. And I think you said you you were seeing some friends on that Saturday afternoon, and then I remember getting the call from the builder and saying, unfortunately, we're gonna to have to take all the plaster off. And we budgeted for I think maybe two skips, and it would literally be a few bin bags of wallpaper, etc. And then once he sent us the video of the plaster all coming off in thick chunks of maybe an inch or two, we thought, oh, oh dear, this is not not what we planned, and it sort of changed the whole scope of the project then and what we needed for the strip out. So yeah, it, it was quite annoying when we found out. I think. Yeah, I wasn't best pleased, um, but you know these things happen, and I think. Um, you kind of you need to go into projects with a plan A and a plan B. It's why it's always prudent to have a contingency because you never really know what you're going to come up against. There's one question we get a lot of the time is whether we bother with um, structural surveys on on buildings that we're buying, and, and typically we don't really because a survey is usually going to be non-intrusive. It's it's impossible to go into somebody's home or. Uh, somebody's office, a property that you don't own and ask a surveyor to start lifting floorboards or poking holes in walls to see what's going on. Anything that is um, visible to the, the naked eye, you would pick up anyway. And if you're not comfortable with that, then yeah, maybe a survey is a good thing. But we're, we're, we're kind of, we know what we're looking for when it comes to uh, cracks or signs of subsidence or uh, damp or anything that, that would be visible. Um, and, you know, things like this, it's just, they're, they're not necessarily going to pick it up because they're not going to be able to go in with a hammer and start chipping off plaster to see how well adhered to the wall it is. So a uh, little side note there, typically I think structural surveys are a bit of a waste of time. Um, but in this case, uh, yeah, we, we got a little bit of a surprise and the contingency will be pushed, shall we say, with the, the addition of having to, board and then skim the the entire building um so fun and games but you know you say it, it happens and you just need to deal with that um you mentioned there about the addition of skips so i mean it's it's one of the the things as well you know people often think well we need to replaster it um and that's going to have a cost for material and labor but i mean the strip out as well the cost of that shot up pretty quickly as well didn't it yeah, it completely changed the job and from going from a few lads with a few scrapers on site to peeling off wallpapers, it then came to a whole job with face masks and hammers and chisels and skip after skip after skip. And this was one thing I didn't realise is how expensive skips were. I mean, <laughs> yeah. At the time, I think we were, it was about £300 a skip nearly. So once you get a couple of those, the price really does add up. And it was, I think we were getting two skips a day on some days and they were literally being dropped off in the morning and then picked up in the afternoon and then the same again the next day. So it really did change the scope of the job. Yeah. And once we got that plaster off, um, I mean, I think with hindsight, it was, it was worth doing. You know, we always want to do a job well. We want to, if that's what the building needed, then there was no chance that we were going to try and patch it up or cover it up. It also uncovered a couple of things um, that well, I guess from a negative point of view, we might not have have spotted in terms of some of the issues that we found. Uh, from a positive point of view, we we would have picked up on the the loft space. But um, you know, doing that strip out, it totally changes the feel of the building. It totally changes your perception of it, and I think you can look at it with a fresh set of eyes only when that strip out is complete. I don't know if you found that as well that. 
you know, your, your ideas about the building and the way that you interpreted layouts and sizes changed a little once that strip out was complete? Yeah, for sure. It's almost like it's, it's like a blank canvas now. So it's as we're going to go in and obviously we can visualize more where the stairs will be because up to the seventh bedroom, because now all the, all the roof has been pulled down and you're just able to visualize the rooms a lot clearer and where things will go and how all the rooms will work. So I think even though it's been a bit of a pain with the extra strip out work, I think it, for me, going in with no experience, it'll be really beneficial to see how the project has literally gone from what an in-use building, let's say it was disused for a couple of years, but then back to brick and then back to a fully maintained and spec'd out HMO. So yeah, I think it'll be really good for, for me to learn to learn this process from the very start to the very finish. Yeah, yeah, you'll definitely get to see all aspects of a project here. Um, talk to me about the some of the negative things that we uncovered during that strip out. So yeah, so this was uh, only one of the things, well, one of the big things that we found, and it is a crack from the ground floor right to the top floor, but on the inside of the house. And at first, um, when they were stripping it out, they only thought it ran from the first floor from the ground floor to the first floor and then as they worked their way up the house they they realized it went straight to the top of the house and this is something from the outside of the building you can't see because it's party wall and without a survey now we wouldn't really know uh, well we need to get the survey now sorry to find out the movement of it and make sure it's all secure with the structural engineer so that was one of the things and then there was a few other few other little not loose bricks really but just a, a bit of brick where we'll have to replace and make them make them all good so there's a few little things but it's nothing that can't be sorted which is good i like that attitude i I imagine that's possibly a change of uh a change of attitude for you from you when you started as well and it's kind of the attitude that i try to adopt everything is fixable you know you uncover these things and some people some people panic they get worried they they think they made a huge mistake but you know the reality is people have been building uh, you know, certainly in, in, in the UK, we've been building brick structures for a long time. We've been repairing them for a long time. Everything is fixable. And mm. yes, it might impact the schedule. It might impact the budget, but there's very little you'll come up against that doesn't have a solution. And, and in a lot of cases, the solution is a lot cheaper, a lot easier than you might first think as well. Absolutely. I mean, when I first discovered the cracks and stuff like that, you automatically like think, how, how on earth am I going to do this? But what I found is a lot of the Facebook groups that we're in, like everybody on different projects up and down the country all have very similar issues. And then once you scan a few of the Facebook groups for a couple of minutes, you sort of find out who you need to speak to, what you need to ask, and even sometimes how much is even going to cost a fix. Mm-hmm. So it, it is quite easy to find out what you need when, when you know where to look for it, which is quite good. And I mean, that's only something I've learned since working for you. So yeah, it's been a real benefit. Good. And from a, a positive point of view, um, obviously the loft, we had some idea that there was space in the, the top floor of the building, uh, but during the viewing, we didn't have any access to it. And it wasn't really until we got some of the laborers to poke a hole through the, the ceiling that we got to see the real, the full extent of that that loft space which was a, a nice little boost uh, a nice bonus on top of what we already thought was going to be a good deal absolutely well i think that that seventh bedroom out there i think that'd be the favorite bedroom i think that would be the first one to go because i mean the loft space and it's a big loft space up there it's something that we totally underestimated so i definitely think that'll be the, the first room to go once it's all done yeah normally 
from a, an, an analysis point of view, you can get a good idea of the viability of a loft conversion just by looking along the, the roof line of the street. Uh, satellite view on Google Maps is great for that or just having a walk up and down and looking for dormers, looking for skylights to give you an indication of, well, if other people have done it, it's probably feasible. The more people that have done it, the more feasible, the more easy it could be. It's just an indication. Obviously, there's nothing set in stone, um, but it's, it's, a, it's a good way to see quickly whether a loft conversion is going to be appropriate if it is going to be a feasible option for you. In this case, it's a bit of a strange one, I suppose. The the block, it's a, it's a mid-terrace building, the block that it was on, there weren't many signs of loft conversions, mainly I think because a lot of them are still commercial and nobody's thought it's been worthwhile to do that. And then the rest of the street, it's a, it's a busy main road, so lots of different types and styles of property. So difficult to sort of sense that we weren't really convinced whether we would have the head height up there or how much space there would be. Um, but you, you said we're going to get a seventh bedroom up there. The original plan was for, for six bedrooms. And as I said, it's stacked at that. Um, but this, this seventh bedroom, uh, you know, it's, it is, it is a real boost. It's a bonus to the project. It gives us an extra lettable unit, which is additional income. And it'll also help with the, the end value of the project because the end value will be based on, the rental income as a, a commercial uh, based HMO. Um, so it's, it's all good. It, it'll cost us a little bit of money to do that loft conversion. Um, but you know, the, the benefits we get from that will be pretty significant as well. Absolutely. Cause I think what, when we all stood outside the back and we were looking at the various roofs, like the first times we were there, we, we certainly didn't think it was feasible to do it because over, I think over the many years those houses have been there, you can see people have added to them at various different points and it was all a bit of a bit of a mix up, but um, it was only literally like you said, when they pulled down the, the hole in the roof and you were able to stand on those tiny ladders and get your torch up there that you realised how big it was and where the opportunity for that seventh bedroom could come from. So it was definitely worth, well, in my eyes, taking it back to brick and then being able to get that seventh bedroom. Yeah, I think the health and safety police would have been quaking in their boots. <laughs> See, seeing me perched on top of the, the top step of that ladder that was perched on top of a pile of rubble. Um, but it was the only way we could get up there. And it was, uh, I'm, I'm very impatient. So I, I had, to, <laughs> had to have a little nosy around and, and see what was going on. Um, with loft conversions in an HMO, they are a great way to add space. There are lots of ways. Obviously, you can go down into basements and cellars. You can go up into lofts. You can extend the building. Um, lofts, I really like in a lot of cases, if you've got the head height up there, you can put a dormer on and get two additional bedrooms and often a bathroom or an ensuite up there, uh, in the space of a, a typical sort of three bedroom terraced house roof space, which can be a great boost to the property. In this case, we decided to go for one bedroom without the dormer. So we're keeping it within the existing, um, the existing sort of physical boundary of the, the roof rather than putting a dormer, rather than changing the, the roof space at all. We did that for a couple of reasons. One, it'll keep the cost down a little bit. Uh, two, it'll keep the, the schedule or the program shorter. And we're, we're keen to get this project turned around pretty quickly. But three as well, just from a, 
a balance within the house. Um, we're always trying to get the right balance between bedrooms, number of occupants, and the communal space that, that we provide them. And whilst we felt that seven people living there, there was enough communal space with the kitchen, the separate lounge. Um, I think we've got, I can't remember if we finally decided on the little co-working space or a, a separate utility room in the cellar as well, but we felt there was enough communal space for seven people, but it would kind of be be pushing it. So a um, couple of reasons we didn't do that, but yeah, a good, a good loft conversion with a dormer. If you're thinking, how can I maximize the, the number of bedrooms in this house? It's, it's a, a good way to get an additional two bedrooms in, in most layouts. Um, you mentioned something else as well there though, Will. You mentioned, um, I think you mentioned anyway, the idea of um, once that strip out was complete, uh, just being able to get a better sense of the work that was required. And it's, it's a great point, I think, because, you know, a lot of people try to plan their projects down to the most minute level of detail before they have got the keys or, you know, before they've completed on, on the purchase. But I think, and I guess you find this as well, that it's actually a lot easier to make an accurate plan once you've done that strip out. And sometimes then it makes sense to, you know, you can have a loose plan, you can have a rough idea of how long things are going to take and what your budget is, but getting that strip out done as quickly as possible, it then shows you the real bones of the building and the opportunity, the constraints, and it allows you to put together a much more accurate plan for, for what the next stages look like. Absolutely. I mean, when you when we had the plan to start with, we always knew you're going to have to adapt it maybe at little points throughout the program and just make little adjustments for things that come up. But with this, we're able to get the plan from from now it's back to brick. So we're able to see all the structural issues, if there is any, and every aspect of the building. And we're able to focus on the parts that need to be focused on at the very start. And then we can, like I said before, it's like a blank canvas and we can plan the program now accordingly. So I definitely think it'll would be beneficial for us good i um i guess you know part of the the point of this series really is to give people an idea as to whether or not they think they could run their own hmo project this is a fairly sizable one it's a commercial conversion it's in an article four area it's seven uh seven occupants which pushes it into a different planning use class it's so generous rather than c4 um you know there's there's a lot of things going on with this project but from strip out point of view uh you know anything anything in there that you felt that you couldn't deal with um, not particularly no it was more just like for the first it was obviously the first time i was encountering any of these problems and like you said rather than panicking it's always best to go on the forums go on the the blogs as well and just see what see what see what other people have experienced with their own projects and there's always somebody talking about the, the latest project that they've done whether it be a hmo or a another conversion it's there's always answers to the questions and i think that's what really put my mind at ease because I, I do remember getting that phone call from the builder saying oh dear and then i, I was remember thinking how am i going to tell mike this on a saturday afternoon it's <laughs> it, it, it'll be it'll, it'll ruin his saturday because it's completely changed the project and i remember then speaking to you like well this actually happens quite a lot it's i mean it's a pain but these things happen so it's nothing that can be done about it. and it's good that we found it now and not in a couple of years time when all the plasters all all come down and it's in people's bedrooms. So I think it's just one of those things that you've got to get on with, isn't it, at the end of the day? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you said that because I guess, you know, my my hope with this was that we could we could show that it is feasible um, and 
yeah, so far, so good. Okay, um, the next thing I wanted to touch on with you was planning. We spoke about the planning application in the previous episode, but I guess there have been some changes or specifically there have been some delays, two things that have caused delays to our application. Um, the first was actually as a result of the discovery of this uh, this loft space and the, the change to the, the seventh bedroom. So that, that held up as submitting the application for what, maybe a couple of weeks? Yeah, we got given a, a two-week time time window to be able to complete the ecology survey. So because we were going into into the loft space, they, they required an, a, an ecology survey to focus on the bats to see if there was any bats in the building or whether there was any entrance points. And we only had the two-week time period to complete the survey and get the report and then resubmit it. So that was a bit of a, a time constraint because it seemed everybody was building at that point and everybody needed ecology surveys, which was unfortunate for us. So we had to make quite a few phone calls to various different ecology specialists. And we finally got one who's able to be very helpful for us and get it back to get it back to us within the week. So that was something that they really helped us out with. Yeah, I think I think you did pretty well tracking someone down that was able to get it turned around in that period of time. Um, and again, just for reference, I guess the, the ecology survey, I mean, they, they can cover various things. Uh, newts come up fairly often. It depends on the, the type of work that you're doing, uh, the project, the location. In this case, I think it was more focused on potential bats nesting. I don't know if the correct term is nesting or roosting or whatever. Maybe pigeons roost in bats nest. Anyway, uh, bats hanging out in our loft space. Anytime that you are going to be doing work to the roost space, uh, chances are you will need to do some sort of bat slash ecology survey. Uh, and you mentioned at the start that this only came up when we added that loft. Prior to that, there were no expert or external reports required beyond the architect's drawings and the design and access statement. It was a really simple application, really um, minimal requirements from, uh, from Trafford Council. Um, but that ecology survey came up with the addition of the the seventh bedroom and the changes to the loft space so just another thing to keep in mind i guess if you are um if you're going into the roof space or you know if you're starting to um extend buildings and stuff there might be more requirements added to your your planning uh your planning application um so that was a fairly minor delay you said you got that turned around in about two weeks and then we got it all submitted and approved by by the council pretty quickly after that yeah, absolutely. And it, it was another bonus, actually, that we completed the strip out as well, because I think um, the, the uh, I can't remember his name, unfortunately, but the gentleman who came to do the survey for us, he was very thankful, because otherwise that meant he'd have to climb up put up his ladders and get into the loft space. And he often says these are absolutely filthy and shine his torch around. So it was a very quick survey for him. He was able to shine his torches around the building and see all the entry points. And he was happy there and then um, that there was no entry for bats and there was no existing bats there, which was good. So he, he was pretty much able to confirm. He just had to finalise his report and then he sent it to us that following that, that week, sorry, and we submitted it the next day. So yeah. it was perfect for us. Yeah, I love a bit of uh, I love a bit of a quick turnaround like that. Good news is is always good to receive. Um, the the other delay though, I guess, is potentially going to be a bit more problematic and uh, as usual, the worst the worst delays or the most pushback that you can you can get is when the local community get involved because they don't like your plans. So you originally, I think, uh, our first 
our first awareness that there was potentially going to be an issue, I think, was an email that, that you received out of the blue from uh, one of the neighbours. Yeah, it was a, a local resident who, on one of the nearby roads, she just voiced a few concerns that she had. And I think that's quite often because you see in the news that some people with HMOs, that they're just there as money makers and they don't really care who put in them. But we like to put young professionals in there who like to contribute to the area. And that that is the demographic that, that we uh, like to house. So it's, yeah, it was trying to let, the, let our uh, local resident know that this was the case and that she shouldn't have any concerns to worry about. Yeah, didn't seem to do the trick, unfortunately, as diplomatic as you were. Um, and I think, you know, some people is just a case of, no, I don't really want, I, I, I don't understand it, so I don't want it. Um, you know, some of the responses will, were along the lines of, well, what if you're not able to rent it to young professionals, then you'll put uh, homeless people or uh, drug addicts or ex-offenders in there. And I mean, the, the sort of um, the moral high ground is that, well, everybody needs a place to live. Um, but the business proposal from our point of view is that's not the demographic we go after. We know our business model. We've bought a house there because we know that there is demand from young professionals. So that's never going to be an issue. But sometimes it can be difficult to, to convey that to people who are concerned about developments and you know there will be people who are concerned about new build development because they think that the schools are overcrowded or parking's an issue there will be people who are concerned about houses being converted into flats about hmos about serviced accommodation in tourist towns because it's unaffordable for locals to buy places so there there will always be an element of community concern about any sort of change um, and in this case, it got to the stage where uh, there was, I don't know exactly uh, how it works in Trafford Council. Again, each, each council will have their own requirements, but there were sufficient um, neighbour objections raised during the neighbour consultation period and or a councillor objected to it, which means that it's looking pretty likely it's going to go to a planning committee meeting now rather than it being decided by the planning officer. So planning officer is um, employed by the council. Uh, they are a planning expert and they should make decisions based on local planning policy. I like planning officers making decisions because more often than not, um, it's a checkbox exercise. Does it meet minimum room sizes? Does it meet local parking requirements? Blah, blah, blah. Yes. Okay, fine. It's approved. Um, the, the difficulty when it goes to a committee meeting is it becomes a bit more subjective because it is discussed and debated and often voted on or always voted on probably um, by elected councillors who don't always understand planning policy, who are more interested in, in votes and community support than does this comply with planning policy. So it, it's a bit frustrating. The planning officer will be there and they will advise on it. Um, but yeah, if the, the committee decide that they don't like it or they don't like us or uh, whatever else, like I say, it's, it's a bit more subjective. So um, all, all fun and games for you to look forward to. Well, I am, I am quietly confident it will get approved, but obviously um, it's going to be a new experience for you to, to go through to see how it works. Um, and it'll be interesting as well, you know, just to see the other projects that are, I, I think going to planning committee meetings is a good experience for anyone to see how they're run, to see the type of projects that 
are being uh, brought to them to see how the counselors are interpreting different things, what they like, what they don't like. It can give you some good insights into um, you know, potential future projects you might want to look for or might want to avoid in your local area as well. Absolutely, yeah. So I think we've got that. Well, yeah, I think the next one is scheduled for a couple of weeks. So we're just waiting to hear back from our planning consultant on the confirmed date. And then, yeah, it'll be getting ready for that and understanding what it entails and how we can get the decision that we want. So, yeah, it'll be something to look forward to, I suppose. That's yeah. the correct term to use. Yeah, well, no, I think, I think you know, it's, it's a good learning experience. And like I say, I'm quietly confident it will get approved. Um, worst case, if the committee votes against it, um, we can appeal it. There, there is a, a planning uh, appeals process. And because we know that our development meets planning policy, when it goes to appeal, it will get approved. It's just another delay that we don't really want to, to deal with. So better to get it, better to put forward uh, a good proposal, better to defend it well at the committee meeting. Um, now, I know the answer to this, but just um, for, for anyone listening, uh, are you going to be presenting this at the committee meeting or is somebody else going to be doing it? So it will be our planning consultant who is doing it and then I'll be there with him. So I think it, as a learning experience, it will be great for me to see and it will be able to see how our planning consultant articulates our proposal, which will be good to see. Yeah, I think this is one of the things where it is best left to experts, in my opinion, um the there's a couple of things i think that add more weight to your proposal the first is that um they obviously they're they're an expert that's what they're paid to do they've studied planning policy they know the ins and outs of it and they can make a a well-founded well-articulated argument based on the facts that they need they know that they need to uh, address in order to get something approved Second is that I think from a presentation point of view or a, a, yeah, a, th- there will be more clout behind the words of a planning consultant. I think that will be viewed more favorably and more difficult to dispute than it would be from a layperson who was presenting their own development with you know, their own vested interest in that development getting approved. The planning consultant, um, you know, they've got the right letters after their name, they've got the right job title. I think that the councillors and the planning officer from the council will view that more favourably than me or you showing up and saying, we'd really like to get this approved because we want to make tonnes of money from it. Absolutely. And I think from my perspective, it's more of a, a learning experience to understand how these meetings work and the whole planning process as a whole. So like you said, it's relying on the, the expertise of the planning consultants that we have to, to secure the score the planning permission yeah one word of advice um i'm not particularly proud of this but i am a little bit secretly um i almost got kicked out of the last planning committee meeting that i went to because they have very strict timings and an order that people speak in and you can't speak unless spoken to once your time's up you have to sit down and then the counselors can raise their concerns and what frustrated me um and why i spoke out of turn was they were asked if they had any questions uh, and I, I would then have a, a chance to address those questions. Um, they all said no. And then when it went into the debate or the discussion, they started asking about, oh, well, does this meet? They started asking each other questions they didn't know the answers to. What about parking requirements? These rooms, uh, do they meet um, minimum room standards? And the answers were 
in, in all cases, the development meets local planning policy. But because they had raised them in the discussion rather than the Q&A, I wasn't allowed to tell them the answers. Um, and I spoke up and they said, you need to be quiet or leave. So um, follow Ralph's guidance. Listen, uh, it'll be interesting. I, but I'm sure, like I say, I'm, I'm, I'm quietly confident that it will all be fine. Um, and you're much more polite and sophisticated than I am anyway. So I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure you won't be threatened with eviction. Um, well, so you can see, yeah, it'll be good. I'm looking forward to it anyway. You're thinking hopefully a couple of weeks before the next committee meeting. They usually run them once a month, but sometimes there is pauses for summer holidays. Obviously, COVID has screwed up the schedule a little bit. Um, mm. But yeah, usually about a month's delay could be expected if it's going to committee. Um, so that's that's something that we need to factor into our, our program. Um, but there are, there are a couple of options with delays to planning, or even if there aren't any delays, you're just waiting for the, the usual eight-week determination period uh, to reach its conclusion, um, there are a couple of different options. You can, and I guess this is the safest route, but also the slowest, wait until planning is approved before you start doing any work on site. Um, That's fine. It's a very sort of proper and prudent way to do things. It minimizes the risk. Um, But if you're like me and you're impatient, um, there's a couple of other ways that you can approach things as well. So um, I guess the the other extreme is uh, you could just crack on with the project. You could assume that planning is going to get approved. And if it's not, you know that you'll have to go back and undo the work that you have put into it. So it depends on your level of confidence, uh, how risk averse you are. Uh, but in theory, you could just crack on with your project and you know keep everything crossed that it is approved the middle ground is where we we usually operate and probably will be uh in the region of where we operate on this project where we assess it we look at um well you know what is the biggest risk here is it the change of use to an hmo probably not um because although it's in an article four area we know that we aren't in the area that the local authority are actually concerned about so um, you know, in most cases, a house can be converted into a, a, up to a six occupant HMO under permitted development. So there's an argument there. Um, it meets housing demand. So we could say, well, you know, it might be the seventh bedroom that's contentious. So we could crack on with work that impacts the, the six bedrooms. You know, we could start with the cellar conversion because we'd probably want to do that anyway, depending on what your, your backup plan is. If you were thinking, well, you know what, if this doesn't work out, we're going to split it into a couple of flats and we still need to then go back to brick. We still need to, uh, you know, some of these stud walls are going to be in the same place. You can do some of the work that you know is going to be done regardless um, and then not start on the the risky work, I guess, until things are approved. And it's that sort of middle ground. We we will probably take a call on it um, once we're a bit clearer on the, the program and the costings and decide, you know, do we want to make a start? Have we got a build team that are capable of starting? But there are options um, that you can you can consider and apply to your own project, depending on your backup plans and depending on your, your sort of risk propensity as well. Absolutely. So I think that's one thing that I'll, I'll really learn. So going through the whole planning process is when you can make the, the decisions to sort of proceed with the with the work that you know that will be passed through and then when 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 is best to hold off and particularly in this situation it's, it's something that i'm learning at the moment mm. 
I mean, I guess, you know, you raised the probably one of the best examples there of the, the strip out, right? Like, had we had we not done that strip out, we would have submitted a, an application for a six bedroom HMO, waited till that was approved. Then we would have got access to the loft and, you know, OK, you, we could have cut access and looked in. But like if we didn't do anything on that project, there was no access to the loft um we could have got to the end of the determination period had six bed hmo approved then discovered the loft and then thought oh well do we want to go back to planning again or have we lost that opportunity because we don't have that that time to waste so um you know sometimes it is good particularly like we said with the, the strip out to 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 run some aspects of a project in tandem rather than you know trying to follow the book specifically Absolutely. And like the point you made there about having the build team in place as well, I think if we then gone and resubmitted and um, resubmit an application at a later date for the seventh bedroom, how, had we not discovered it, then that could have meant we, we lose the build team that we wanted because they have to move on to another project because they can't wait for the, the eight week period. And that means that we can't use them. And then we're back to square one with the, uh, with the contract. We've got to find somebody else to, to come in and then that could add to the time as well. So I think, for overall for the project it, it has allowed us it has allowed us to see the whole scope of the project and plan a little bit more which has been good yeah absolutely um okay so the final subject i want to touch on today and i guess this will probably overlap with next month's episode as well is kind of what you're talking about with getting build teams in place um the tender process so we we need to uh, we need to schedule the works. We need to uh, go out to to tender to get prices, um, and then we need to we need to pick a winning contractor or contractors if we go down the, the subcontractor route, and um, you know get them booked in because everyone's super busy just now. Prices of labor and materials are high. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's a difficult time to, um, to, you know, rock up and say, oh, hey, I've got a project starting next week. Can you, can you come and do it for me? It's unlikely that you're going to find people with that availability. So even though we've got delays with planning, we're always thinking about what's next. What can we be doing now to make our life easier in the future? And at the moment, particularly if you've listened to um, some of the past episodes on the podcast, when we were talking about the idea of the sort of scrum methodology applied to property development and the idea of a four-week HMO, we've got some ambitious plans for this one. So everything needs to really be lined up, ready to start on site as soon as possible. Um, So I guess a question for you, Will, what have we done so far from a, a tender point of view, from planning for our trades and the costings and the, the program for what's going to come next? So um, the first thing that we did is we used one of the online services to get sort of a price for the job. So it was um, estimated online where we submitted all the plans and the drawings and they have essentially broken down the whole project uh, piece by piece and they've uh, produced a number uh, that the project is going to cost and that's something that we've just received. So now we're, we're just in the process of reviewing this and sort of figuring out the budgets for the project now we've had to take into consideration going back to brick so at this stage we've just got to well we're in the process of it now sorry is reviewing this this estimate that we've got and understanding the, the entirety of the scope of the project so and then now we can use this as a basis to to go to contractors and subcontractors depending on which route we go down to to really understand the uh the, the quotes that we're going to receive 
Have you found that useful to have that document to then help you understand, you know, what the different what what different elements should cost, um, whether our quotes that we receive from builders in the future are accurate if they're in the right ballpark? Has it been worthwhile getting that um, that online QS service completed? Absolutely. I mean, it's the the service that we've got estimates online. They've broken it down stage by stage, and they've even they're broken down into labor and materials. So for someone who's not had any experience, it is, uh, it's really served me well and I'm able to like go with confidence now and speak to contractors and say, so we've got X, we've been quoted X price for this and this has been quoted here. So we've got that sort of, I've got that understanding, that, that knowledge now to be able to speak confidently to the contractors, which is really good. Yeah. And I think it's, it's worth keeping in mind that nothing will ever be 100% accurate. We're not sitting here saying, Oh yeah, go on uh, uh, an online QS service and spend 150 quid, and then that's exactly what your project will cost. Some people will um, they they will effectively want to buy the work if they're quiet, less likely now. But you might find that um, one builder is considerably cheaper than another builder because they're quiet because they're looking for work. Maybe somebody who is waiting for their planning application to be approved or has just discovered a seventh bedroom in the loft and resubmitted has canceled on them at the last minute and they're like we need some work so there there are different incentives different motivations for different people at different times um, and of course material prices change labor prices change depends if they're a subcontractor a main contractor what their overheads look like no two people are ever going to uh, provide exactly the same quote for the work and no QS is ever going to get it 100% accurate with what the reality will look like. But one of the questions we get asked so often is going into a project, how can we understand what the build costs are going to be? And there are lots of routes that you can go down. You can take builders with you. You can you know, look in Facebook groups for recommendations or ask people in there what they've spent on carpets or you know, plastering or whatever else. But I think this is one of the best ways to get the most detailed information. When you've got an idea of what the project looks like, you've got drawings, you've got um, a schedule of uh, what you want, what work you want to take place, getting some sort of QS service. uh, It's, you know, yeah, you've got to spend a bit of money on it, but it's not a significant sum and the value that that gives the value that Will has now got from that to go and discuss with trades to understand more accurately what the project's going to cost overall. Um, I think I think that is for me one of, if not the best way to to get that understanding on on any project, not just you know RHMO in in sale, but this could be reapplied to any project that you're working on. Absolutely, I mean because we've got a few other projects on the go and at various different stages, I'm now able to understand various price points that we've got for the different projects and it has really been beneficial so on another project we've currently just had all the plastering stage and been able to understand all the the cost and the work that goes into that and that has come from a lot from the from the qs quote that we got so it has been really beneficial i think that's a great point as well you don't need to do this on every project it gives you a base or a benchmark you know you can go through this and say okay well what are they charging to rewire a bedroom um and you know maybe that project was five bedrooms but the next one's seven okay well you know what it costs to rewire one bedroom so you just times that by seven and you've got your price for the next project as well again it's never going to be a hundred percent accurate but 
nothing nothing will be i think striving for 100 is a waste of time you get it 80 90 you get it as accurate as you can up front and then once you are proceeding with the project you go out to tender you go out to get quotes from people you get their actual uh quotes back and you get it more and more accurate but to do to analyze a deal you know if you're 90 percent accurate and you've got a contingency in there that's that's absolutely good enough to make a buying decision based on um so, you know, having something like this document that you can then reapply to the next project that we're looking at, Will, not only is it going to help with your pricing on this one, but it's going to help with your deal analysis on the next one because your upfront cost estimates will be more accurate as well. Absolutely. And I think that's one thing as we, we go into the next project that we're, that we're on, it, it's something that will be able to take that knowledge forward and not have to do as much research. And like you said, it'll just be a case of if you've got one room or however many rooms that needs wiring, you've already got the costs associated with the other project. And it's just a case of simply working working out what it is for the new project. So we're in the middle of August just now. Um, we will hopefully do another one of these in about a month. What do the next four weeks look like for you on this project? What are you hoping to get done in that time? Well, at the moment, it is just a case of working with our, with our planning consultant and uh, preparing ourselves for... Um, for the committee hearing and getting that sorted and then the other aspect is reviewing all the uh, the documents that we've got from the online QS service and then that gives us the ballpark figure when we go out to tender and what we need to what we need to uh, get quoted for and then that decides whether we go down the main contractor route or like you said whether we go down the, the subcontractor route as well. Okay, so um, again, I guess just in a similar vein to my question about the strip out, anything here that has, you know, proved particularly challenging or made you tear your hair out and think, no, I can't do this. I'm going to go and get a job in a different industry. I think because it's the first time every issue's come up, I've always sort of in that moment when you see the email come through or you, you get the phone call, you think, oh God, what's happened here? But like you said, it, it's relying on the, uh, the consultants that you've got and it's just doing their own research yourself, being able to go onto these forums and even reading quite a few of the books that you've recommended, all the, all the answers are there. And once you understand that it is, it is fixable, it does make it a lot easier rather than going into panic mode thinking, Oh, this, we've got a committee hearing, what have we got to do here? So like you said, everything is solvable and that's the main thing. And like you said, it's a, a good attitude to have, I think. Good. Well, it's what I've found over the past uh, what decade or so that we have been doing this. I used to get super stressed about things, but then you do speak to people, you rely on experts, you realize that, you know, there's nothing really that is the end of the world, nothing that can't be fixed. So you just, um, I guess, I don't know if you develop a thick skin. Um, you don't get blasé about it because you don't want to you know, go into projects with your eyes closed. You need to, you need to keep your eyes open. You need to know what to look for. Um, but you, you also have to have a healthy dose of reality that some things are hidden. Some things will crop up that you didn't expect. Um, and that is when it's a good time to just accept that, you know, it happens and that's why you've got a contingency and you know you can probably get a solution in place with the the right people around you so yeah no it's a, it's a good point to end on uh, everything is figure outable um takes us up to the end of friday for us um so will thank you for joining us i hope you have a great weekend and for everyone who is is listening to this if you're listening to it on 
release day on Monday morning. Uh, I hope you have a great week ahead. Um, I hope maybe gives you some confidence that the projects that you're thinking about doing are feasible. Uh, you can do them. And, uh, you know, I'd encourage you. I think that the hardest part is, is getting started. So, um, you know, just keep that in mind that you learn as you go, as well as doing, uh, you can, you can rely on people to, to offer help and support and, uh, yeah, you might make a few mistakes, but chances are it won't break you and you move from the first on to the next, the next one's better than the last. It's how we started. And it's, uh, you know, for me, it's the, the best way to, to do it. Just roll up your sleeves, get stuck in. So, if I can encourage you to do that, then then I have done my job. But yeah, well, thank you once again and uh, have a great thank weekend. You. We'll speak to you soon. You too, yeah. We'll speak to you on Monday. Thanks as always for joining us today. And I hope you enjoyed the show. I hope you picked up some good tips or insights that you can apply to your own projects as well. As I mentioned at the start, you can download our free introduction to HMO investing from insidepropertyinvesting.com forward slash HMO to help you understand if this is the right strategy for you. We'll also be hosting our Inside HMO Investing program one more time before the end of the year, where me and our team will guide you through every step of the process to find, fund, renovate and manage your first or next profitable HMO deal. Now, you can join the waitlist for this at insidepropertyinvesting.com forward slash waitlist to be the first to hear all of the details and get some exclusive bonus content just for the people who join that waitlist. So that's insidepropertyinvesting.com forward slash waitlist or insidepropertyinvesting.com forward slash HMO to download that free guide. Both of the links are in the show notes for this episode and if you're serious about starting your own HMO portfolio and creating more freedom in your own life over the next 6-12 to months, then hopefully I'll see you there.